0: From Washington D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The chief information officer at the Department of Health and Human Services is leaving the agency. Jose Arieta submitted his resignation Friday. Federal News Network reports Arietta told HHS Secretary Alex Azar he'll be flexible about when he leaves the department. Three legacy information technology systems at the Department of Homeland Security are holding the agency back from executing its mission, according to the agency inspector general. IG Joseph Kafari writes that legacy financial management, human resources, and grant management systems are all outdated, unintegrated, or both. Kafari's report to DHS CIO Karen Evans says the agency isn't maximizing the potential of the Modernizing Government Technology Act either. Travel allowances for federal employees won't change much in the coming fiscal year. A notice from the General Services Administration holds the standard lodging rate in the continental United States at $96. Federal Times reports meal and incidental tiers will hold in the $55 to $76 range. U.S. Cyber Command says Palo Alto Networks has a critical security vulnerability that could give a hacker easy access to the company's network. It's one of several recent warnings from the government about weak points in virtual private networks. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired, president of AppGate Federal Group, former federal chief information security officer. Greg, thanks for coming on the program. People made a lot of a, a deal about the fact that Um, People could use VPNs for remote working, both public and private sector. What's the vulnerability risk as people continue? And it looks like we're extending remote work for a long time.
1: Well, a couple of things. First of all, many people uh, have equated VPNs as secure remote access. It's kind of like people think of Xerox and uh, photocopying. But as you take a look at VPNs, they premiered back in 1996, the same time that Derek Jeter of the Yankees was a Rookie of the Year, and Palm Pilot came out. So VPNs are really elderly technologies, and uh, frankly, uh, hackers and other malicious actors have uh, discovered a lot of vulnerabilities in them, and uh, they're leveraging them in uh, the work-from-home environment.
0: A gentle reminder, Greg, that the host of the program is not a big Yankees fan. So using 1996 as a capstone is probably not your best move as a guest. The question well, as a
1: Red Sox fan, I, I, I get that.
0: I'm, I'm pulling your leg, of course. Um, but what, what does this mean, though, for organizations like federal agencies that are trying to provide secure environments for their employees to work for the next who knows how long at this point?
1: Well, I think the work-from-home environment is uh, going to be around for quite a while, not only in the government sector, but in businesses around the world. We're seeing that uh, folks that are able to work from home really like it uh, for the most part. So having secure remote access capabilities is essential for every enterprise out there. And you want results that are effective, efficient, and secure vpns uh, neutralize your ids your intrusion detection systems your intrusion protection systems and and we've seen uh, hackers and nation state actors including during the opm breach leveraging some of the weaknesses in vpns Uh, there are alternatives uh, that are out there that are now more modern and more secure and less expensive
0: what what's the technology evolution been like in the 1996 to 2020 time frame greg
1: Well, you know, we've seen a a shift within the uh, technology community where folks are realizing that fundamental weaknesses in TCP IP, the backbone of the internet, has it where you connect first and then authenticate later. So new technologies, such as software-defined perimeter technologies, authenticate first and then connect, uh, and only connect you to what you're authorized to see. And they provide the encrypted tunnels, the capabilities, that are uh, much easier to manage, they're less complex for the user as well as the operator, and they're certainly a whole lot cheaper uh, for enterprises to implement.
0: What happens if this um, remote work environment that we're in now extends forever? I mean, we're seeing some private sector companies saying to their employees, don't plan on coming back to the office until next summer. Some major uh, Silicon Valley companies are saying some of our employees will never come back Uh, And I even read that REI, the uh, outdoor goods company, is selling headquarters that it just built because it's gonna let people work in a more dispersed fashion. What's this look like from a security perspective in your view in 2025 or 2030?
1: Well, I think we're already seeing the lead turn on the security uh, landscape where uh, the malicious actors are now targeting home systems. They're trying to come in through multiple paths Uh, They realize that uh, folks have, you know, their home email systems. They're uh, sending out phishing messages, uh, trying to gain a toehold on your home systems, as well as uh, any deployed uh, laptops, desktops, whatever that your enterprise is providing. So we're seeing the the actors targeting the home environment. As a matter of fact, yesterday we saw one of the older malware uh, variants uh, called uh, Agent Tesla came out with a new spin on it where it was actually looking as a keylogger for information as folks were ty- trying to type in information about their VPNs where they could hijack that session. So we're seeing folks targeting vulnerabilities in VPNs. They're going after the home environments to try to gain a strategic advantage in the marketplace.
0: We just have a couple of minutes left. I mentioned the alert from U.S. Cyber Command. We're seeing alerts from DHS, from uh, other organizations in government. Is that significant, and what should we read, if anything, between the lines of those alerts, Greg?
1: I think we need to be paying attention, and uh, bravo to all the federal agencies. We're seeing FBI is leveraging InfraGuard, CISA, and the U.S. CERT are putting out uh, great products, uh, uh, reminding folks to— keep their systems current, patch their uh, systems, and uh, keep their applications up to date in addition to the operating systems. Uh, NSA and Cyber Command have been putting out products as well. So for all of us, we should be paying attention to these things, but we should also take a look strategically and say, hey, if if I keep on seeing vulnerabilities in elderly uh, equipment and capabilities such as VPNs, Maybe I need to start investing uh, some time and effort to look at recapitalizing to something that's more secure. It's going to cost me less, and it's going to be more effective for the environment we have in the future.
0: Greg Tuhill, I don't get a chance to say this very often, so please today, check the standings. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks so much. Uh, Go Nats, go Rock. Up next, a reprieve for the Pentagon and its contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, next moves for the department and vendors to purge its systems. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Defense Department and its contractors have more time to search systems to remove components Chinese companies made. The deadline that was supposed to come last Thursday is now September 30th. Gordon Bitko, senior vice president of policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former chief information officer at the FBI. Gordon, welcome back. It's good to have you back. What is going on here with this uh, deadline slide? What exactly do companies have to do?
2: Francis, thank you for having me back. I'm sorry that it's a virtual presence, not in person. I look forward to being back in the studio one of these days. But let me give a a quick overview of of 889 for for those of you who don't know. 889 is, this is the second part of, of a section from the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Act, from 2019. Part A went into effect last year and it banned the government from directly procuring from those covered entities. So they're not allowed to procure products from Huawei, ZTE, and a number of of named providers of video surveillance equipment as well. Part B, which is going into effect now, and although DOD has gotten a waiver for a few weeks, for the rest of government it's still in effect. Part B requires those contractors who are doing business with government to also make representations that they are not using products from those covered entities. And that's really incredibly broad, Francis, right? It doesn't cover just large defense procurements. It covers everything from those all the way down to the smallest commercial products being acquired as micro-purchases with a government credit card. Those are, those are covered as well. And so everybody doing business with the government is going to have to make representations that they don't have these products in their supply chain or to request a waiver. And the waiver process in itself is somewhat complex and, frankly, uh likely to discourage many people from requesting a waiver because the amount of work that they'll have to put into processing that
0: the the this goes really far down into the industrial base of both the defense department and the civilian agencies too doesn't it gordon
2: that that's correct francis really it really touches on everything this this literally is affecting all government procurements and there are a number of issues here that still need to be resolved that if they aren't have the potential to really call contracting and procurements into question. I think it's a good thing that the Department of Defense got this waiver until the end of the fiscal year, because as we all know, the end of the fiscal year is when a lot of contract activities occur, and this will enable them to process those between now and the end of the fiscal year. But for other agencies and for even the department come October 1, there are some real challenges still to being able to effectively do procurements. The rule that came out doesn't really provide a lot of the specificity that is needed.
0: I want to talk about some of those challenges if we have time, Gordon, but it strikes me as interesting that the Defense Department got a waiver, the civilian agencies don't. And I wonder if you see a disparity there or maybe it, 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 some possibility of a reason behind the disparity.
2: I think that the department has been uh, actively engaged with, uh, with their supplier base, with industry, and understands the risks and the consequences and has been proactive in talking about some of the challenges with implementing this rule. Uh, Undersecretary Lord testified a, f- a month or two ago, and she actually recommended to Congress a year-long delay so that they could work out some of these issues. So I think that highlights that, that, that the Department of Defense has been proactively trying to address these challenges. And some of the other agencies, I think, maybe are, have not been as forward-leaning, so, so they haven't been out there requesting that waiver.
0: So I want to ask you about those challenges you alluded to a few moments ago, Gordon. It strikes me that in some cases it's pretty simple. A company looks at the products that it's offering and says, we can sell this one still. We can't sell this one anymore. That's pretty straightforward. In other cases, it's much more complicated. How should organizations be going through their infrastructures, their product offerings, their service deliveries, and deciding what they can keep and what they can't keep?
2: Yeah, I think that really cuts to the heart of the matter, Francis. You're right. In some cases, it's going to be very straightforward. It's a product that is directly using one of these covered uh, uh, equipment from one of these covered entities, and that's out. There are going to be other cases where that's a lot harder to figure out. And part of that is because the rule, which just came out last month, doesn't really specify what a reasonable inquiry is. So it's leaving it up to companies to figure that out for themselves. In other words, it it does say you don't need to do a full audit. But it doesn't say, for example, in the current climate, many employees are working remotely from home. They might be using network service providers who are using covered equipment. Is that covered under this rule or not? Those things are are not clear. And so I I think that there's need for more guidance to still come out to address this. Otherwise, the risk is that different contracting officers and different agencies will interpret that differently. And that's gonna cause a lot of confusion. You might be allowed to make a representation in one contract in one way, and in a different one, you won't be able to make that representation. And I think another really important point about all this, just uh, to note very quickly, Francis, is that the the scope is beyond just if an entity has a subsidiary that does business directly with the government. It covers their business that they're doing commercially as well. So if if a company is doing business with the government and doesn't use covered equipment there, but does in other other, uh, business lines of theirs, that's also required to be disclosed in this in this rule, so that's a, a, again a very significant and broad interpretation of the requirements
0: less than a minute left gordon where should that guidance come from and what would make it clear enough in your view that companies would get it but it would also reach the intended goal of securing this equipment and eliminating the equipment that the government thinks is a risk
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that there's a real risk there, Francis. I think one of the things that we would really like to see is the Secure Technology Act identified the need for a risk-based process and for the Federal Acquisition Supply Council to to really take the lead on this. And what I would really like to see, what industry would really like to see, is a true risk-based approach with consistent guidance, not continuous different statutes and executive orders and requirements coming out about supply chain issues, but one consistent set of guidance that's risk-based. And that's done in conjunction with industry who's able to provide real input on what the risks are and what things can be done to mitigate those risks outright and what things can be done short of ripping equipment out when, when it, that's not necessary. And, 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 and unfortunately, that's, that's still a long ways to go.
0: Gordon Bitko, thanks very much. As always, great to see you.
2: Francis, thank you again for having me.
0: Up next, a vote of confidence and maybe a vote of reality for FedRAMP. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's new and what's next in the cloud. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The House's version of the National Defense Authorization Act would codify the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program Authorization Act in the law. It could change the way agencies have to use FedRAMP, too. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group and former Chief Information Officer of the United States. Tony, thanks for coming on. What do you think the big deal is about the fact that this act is appearing in the House NDAA, Tony?
3: Well, there's three takeaways I have from this. The first one is it's great to see legislative recognition of uh, this important um, uh, issue, you know, that is getting to the cloud uh, faster for the government. Uh, As you know, it's been a struggle sometimes to get um, congressional recognition and uh, enough awareness. So I think this helps that a lot. Secondly, if it passes into law, and this is a little bit for policy walks only, but it allows OMB to write guidance in a different way than when it's just part of uh, GSA's uh, operating procedures. So I think that's really important. Um, And then thirdly, uh, and I think maybe one of the hidden benefits is it should allow uh, other agencies to use authorizations that have been gotten by a different agency in a more seamless way so um, you know there's always downsides to things but uh, I think net net this is uh, probably a good thing across the board. People have argued Tony that this entire television
0: program is for policy wonks only so I don't think that number (laughs) two is necessarily a shortcoming. Um, The reciprocity issue it strikes me is the most important potential change here to the way FedRAMP could look different in the future as opposed to the past. Um, When GSA stood it up Dave McClure was on my radio show years ago and said the point of this is to establish a floor and so that agencies would know if something's FedRAMP uh, certified, it uh, l- reaches this level of, of uh, security approval, and then agencies can add on to that. This strikes me that the goal is to get away from that, adding on stuff, and encourage agencies or maybe push agencies to only use what some other agency has already established. Am I reading that right?
3: Um, I think it could be interpreted that way. I think in practice, um, you know, you're going to see some of that. Uh, there's a fair amount of independence, you know, in agencies as you uh, have come to know, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, and so I don't think that's going to not continue. I think the big programs will probably continue to go their own way. Um, But um, I do think it's a big benefit for smaller agencies or smaller uh, subsets of agencies that uh, have been reluctant to take on uh, what seemed like a big burden to them. And now it should be a lot easier. Should it be
0: uh, a measure of ease for the bigger agencies, though? You, You rightfully say, you're correct, I've seen that these agencies really like their independence and they like to be able to choose their own levels of security and and security elements but is that really necessary at this point in time tony or sh- should it be easier should agencies make it easier on themselves to choose to, to make these choices
3: well i think one of the problems is that cybersecurity is a never-ending battle and so whatever is established as FedRAMP ramp is as good as yesterday's uh recognition of the problems of the day before and as we all know, cyber threats continue to grow and people get creative and figure out new ways. So I agree with your earlier comment and, and Dave McClure that you know this is probably just a floor, a minimum set of things, um, but we really need to keep making uh, advances uh, over time. And so uh, I think you'll see agencies take additional steps on top of whatever is in FedRAMP. If you were doing it, if you
0: were writing the policy that was coming out of OMB, how would you write it differently for FedRAMP to be effective for an agency in 2022 or 2024? Or is the changing nature of the threat landscape such that that's not practical, that we have to think about now and the immediate future?
3: Well, one of the things that I think is badly needed, and this is across the public sector as well as the private sector is continuing assessment of the threats. Um, And so you really need to be constantly reevaluating and making those um, threats visible to senior management. So if I were to put anything in, it would be uh, the requirement that the IT teams and the cybersecurity teams be required to give briefings to senior agency officials not just on their cloud born uh, threats, but also threats to their infrastructure and legacy applications. And I would make sure that that was a regular, you know, maybe quarterly uh, kind of exercise. Because if you're not constantly looking at threat landscape and what today's actors are doing, uh, you're never going to be on top of it. We have about a minute left, Tony. The fact that you think that should be mandated seems to
0: indicate to me that you think or know that it's not happening now and it needs to. I don't think anybody would disagree with you that it needs to. What do you think the reasons are that it's not happening now at this point in time? Because everybody knows how bad the cyber threat is.
3: I think it's inconsistent is the problem. Um, I know that in some agencies it is taking place. In other agencies, it's not. And some of it has to do with CIO authorities, this topic we've talked a lot about. And uh, Jerry Connolly has talked a lot about. But, uh, you know, I would make these briefings uh, mandatory and and have all of senior management attend. Um, and, And I think that goes a long way to creating the right initiatives at the most senior levels. Tony Scott, thanks very much, as always. My pleasure. Great to see you.
2: I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV.
0: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and eleven on WJLA 24/7 News, and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on ABC Seven. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon.